The Dharma is deep and lovely. Now have a chance to see it. We now have a chance to see it. Study it. Study it. And practice it. And practice it. We vow to realize its true meaning. We vow to realize its true meaning. very much voice left so I'm going to have to whisper this and I hope you can can you hear me in the back good I blah 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 myself out (laughs) I have have one blah left it's it's okay that comes from a highly concentrated mind. That peace is wonderful, nourishing, necessary. But if we misuse it by becoming so infatuated with it that we resist looking at ourselves, uh, then we've gotten stuck in a certain way the the lion is no different than the doggy, just gotten stuck somewhere else. And so, to save the day, actually, the spider swallows the lion. It does that, if you recall, because one of the, the best medicines, the best that I know, for when we do get attached to this wonderful feeling which is inevitable when we get concentrated, inescapable. When that itself becomes part of the field of attention, the concentrated state itself, the peace itself, we see it arise and pass away. We see that it lacks permanence, that it doesn't provide total fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment. Wonderful as it is, it comes to an end. It's a conditioned state. And so, uh, now that the, the lion's gone, and before we get into the spider, endlessly spinning its web, 
spinning its endless web, rather. Uh, some of the questions that came up, I think, uh, require a little bit of clarification about the relationship of shamatha to vipassana. Uh, it seems like many of the questions have to do with, is there a clear beginning and ending where sort of shamatha ends off and vipassana begins? There isn't. Uh, it's a language. When we're primarily emphasizing that aspect of mind training that's concerned with sticking to an object, we call it shamatha. But as you know, you've learned things, even though we've uh, been emphasizing that, were emphasizing that for the first phase of the retreat. There were insights at various levels that came about anyway. And when we start to practice vipassana, when we begin to see into the nature of things, let's say you see into something fairly, uh, fairly deeply, and there's a letting go of it, and allowing it to be just what it is, and a letting go of it, which is the same thing. Peace comes from that. So that peace actually comes out of insight work, and when we have uh, peace, Wisdom grows out of the peace. Actually, as the mind becomes more still, it can see more clearly. Perhaps what will help, there are images that are used in the Thai forest tradition to explain the relationship of serenity to reflection, serene reflection or shamatha vipassana, whatever language you prefer. Vipassana is like the blade of a knife and shamatha is like the handle. Uh, If you don't have a handle, you can cut yourself. So the blade is not really uh, useful. But if you just have a handle with no blade, then it's useless in a different way. So both of them work together. It's a a handle that enables you to wield and use uh, the sharpness which is the wisdom. Uh, Another image that's used is a mango that's unripe, that's green and sour. And when that mango ripens, it becomes yellow and sweet. Well, is it the same mango or a different mango? So it's the same mind. We're always working with the same mind and it's just uh, sometimes we emphasize one facet of that mind and sometimes another. And as one gets stronger, as long as we don't attach, get caught, it leads to the other. It provides fruit, which then feeds back to it itself. So it's circular. It's right, like the right and left hand working together. And there even comes a point in practice where uh, there's no point uh, in separating them. The mind is just naturally very concentrated and discerning. It's keenly interested in what it's looking at and it's able to do it. So it's something like that. Don't make a hard and fast distinction. Okay, so it's spider mind, what is that? Remember, we've used the image of uh, like being in the center of a web, sitting with our breathing, consciously breathing 
alert to the in-breath, alert to the out-breath. But it's different than when we were doing samadhi practice, shamatha practice, when we were very much focused on the breath in an exclusive way. Although we could hear things happening in the background, things floating through the mind, we weren't really interested in them. What we were concerned about was the breath in an exclusive way, seeing all the subtle qualities of breathing. But now, the spider is sitting right in the middle of its web, breathing consciously, because that's the thread that holds Anapanasati together, staying with the in-breath and the out-breath throughout. The spider, in the middle of its web, is listening with all its heart. But it's not listening for anything in particular. It's very attentive while it's breathing in and it's breathing out. What is it attentive to? It doesn't have an agenda. It's not supposed to be attending to anything in particular. So it's this kind of very, very careful. It's waiting in a sense, breathing and waiting, but it's not the waiting that has anxiety in it. It's waiting without waiting, without the burden of waiting. Totally relaxed, highly alert, breathing, listening. What's the field? What are we paying attention to? I would say perhaps at least the way in which we've been teaching it. uh, I think it's safe to say that we've mentioned this many, many times that what we're attempting to develop is this ability to, to be with things just as they are. Sounds good, but what does that mean? It seems if we have to learn that time and time again in particular situations, mainly by seeing that we don't allow things to be just as they are. One thing that might help is a lot that we can't count on in life. If you rest in certain things, they change and fall away, including life itself. But let's say while we're here, one thing we can definitely count on, we can rely on it, absolutely, is that life is going to insist on being exactly the way it is. Now, this may sound stupid. What in the world is he talking about? Life itself is going to insist on being exactly the way it is. It's so obvious that it's so hard to talk about it. And yet we're quite far away from that. And so the spider, mindfulness, is attempting to more and more learn how to match its attentiveness, its listening, its sensitivity to the way things actually are, because that's the way they are. It's not a matter, uh, we don't have a choice. There's no voting here, democratization. We've decided that we're going to vote out impermanence. It's not fair. And it unfolds in the way in which it wants to unfold. There's so much uncertainty in life that it's important to get comfortable with that. 
And so the practice, we, let's say we've now, the spider, in catching the, the lion in its web, and then finishing them off, eating them, has taken the steady quality inside itself from our shamatha work, from the concentration work, the work on calmness that we did the first part of the retreat. Now the spider has that, it's inherited it, it's taken it into itself. But it also needs a supple, flexible quality, not just to be concentrated on one thing over and over again as, we, as we've been learning with the breath, but to be incredibly flexible so that the concentrated mind can flow can flow freely to what's there. And whatever is there, that's really what's there. But we don't know what it is. We don't know what it's going to be from moment to moment. And so we're in a state of readiness, of alertness, giving attention to the way things are. If I can make a link with some of what Corrado was saying about faith, As we begin to learn how to be with exactly the way life insists on being in that moment, remember when we so often get caught up in what should be, how we want things to be, how they used to be, how we would like them to be. When we do that, we close our heart to the way things are. As soon as you get all involved in wanting things to be other than the way they are, obviously you're not open to the way they actually are. And so the practice is endlessly opening our heart to the way things are, even though it isn't the way we want it to be. And we're learning how to do that. And that's more important, really, than all the different techniques and devices and forms, not to set them up against each other. We need it all. We need all the help we can get. But you know, uh, typically when you come into an interview, it's in the group interviews and individual chats. Uh, in fact, I didn't have a chance to check this with Corrado. Corrado knows much more about uh, the different schools of therapy than I do. But it seemed to me that uh, maybe I could have been more helpful this week by resorting to Rogerian non-directive therapy. I don't know if any of you know that. <laughs> All you do there is you just repeat back what the person said. Okay, so if people come in, well, you know, my mind judges itself a lot. It's constantly judging itself. So your mind is judging itself a lot. <laughs> I just hate it. I'm so tired of my mind judging itself. I guess you don't like the fact that you judge <laughs> Didn't I just say that? <laughs> but truly, that may have been more helpful. Might have been more. <laughs> See, un- until uh, more and more we settle down and realize that that's a lot. That the art of mindful living has a lot. That's that's at the core of it is uh, being real becoming real. This is what's actually happening. Life wants it to be this way. 
but I know, to begin with, we use explanations and expedient, th- expedient things and different techniques to kind of lessen it a bit until the day comes that we can take the full teaching without any sugar coating. It's very gentle, but it's also ruthless. And we don't have to do it all at once. We can't. We're kind of inching our way towards this attitude. But what I'd like to accomplish is at least give you a sense of what it blossoms into as we practice. Okay, let's say we practice more and more and... I think it's, uh, you could say that we develop faith uh, in life as it is. That is, just as we find ourselves in this moment. And in that sense, we're all perfectly equipped to practice. Each one of us, just bring yourself right to IMS or wherever you're meditating. And just, to, just whatever it is that you have, that's perfect. Because what else could you practice with? Somebody else's stuff? your stuff, my stuff. So it couldn't be more perfect. And we uh, need to develop faith that life as it unfolds, that there really is some sense to it, that it, it um, that it's really happening, that it's, for whatever reason, even if we can't grasp it, this is exactly what's going on. A trust in the fact that it seems to unfold in a certain way, that things seem to uh, arise and leave at their own pace. If you leave them alone and attend to them, just consciously with sensitivity, they seem to liberate themselves. That is, if we are present, whatever it is that's happening, it happens and happens, and at a certain point, it exits on its own when its time is due. We can't make it leave sooner or hold it back. More and more we get comfortable with that. As we develop faith in the process of life itself unfolding in that way, it's much easier to let go of all of our opinions as to how things should be. It should be this way, it should be that way, but it is this way. Little by little, we develop faith in the path, in the way, with a capital W, And that way turns out to be exactly where we are and our life exactly as it is. We all have very beautiful, in a sense, uh, aspirations and even carrots held in front of us of enlightenment coming to to that state which is beyond birth and death, liberation and so forth. The path to it is not a shiny golden staircase to heaven. The path to it is exactly ourselves as we are in this moment. Those are the stepping stones. If we want to come to that which is beyond birth and death, the unconditioned, we have to work with what seems to be very conditioned. We have to see the dying in the moment. We see uh, instances of things arising and passing away. So if there is something that is beyond this coming and going, we get to it through thoroughly examining the coming and going. If we want to be peaceful, a major way of becoming peaceful is we thoroughly examine aggression and anger, how we're not peaceful, and so forth. In other words, we become less idealistic in one sense, 
setting up ideals to which we approximate, we become more real. In this sense, a moment of true, true anger in the heart, and you're fully there with it, and allow it to be just what it is, is more beautiful than a fake smile. I don't want to make that an absolute because we know that anger doesn't help very much. But do you see the qualities we're trying to develop? We're trying to learn how to not keep secrets from ourselves. It's soft, gentle training. Corrado and I talk with soft voices, me even more so tonight. But you can see what it is. It takes a lot of courage. But as faith in the process develops, the letting go of how we think it should be becomes easier. And so exactly what's there is the the heart of our practice. And we're happy to be wherever we are to practice in that moment. And there's a certain fulfillment when we're practicing that way, even if what we're practicing with is not intrinsically happy. We know that we're in the right place at the right time doing the best thing that a human being can do on behalf of themselves. We're fully experiencing what our life is in this moment. We may not want it to be that way, but we understand that it is that way, and if we can be with the way it is, we are acting on our own best behalf, rather than hiding from it, denying it, escaping from it, pretending it's not there, uh, intellectualizing it, and so forth. All the many, so many escape hatches for us. So another way of putting all this is the instructions. And if the image of a spider sitting in the middle of the web is not helping you, it doesn't help everyone. Some of you have gotten too caught up in the content of it. Throw it away. It's not important. Put another way, what we're learning is how to be ourselves how to sit right in the middle of our experience. And that experience keeps changing from moment to moment. And how to be ourselves. How to not try to be someone else. How to be naked. To just sit and let all the statuses that we've accumulated and the ethnic identities that we've accumulated and the preoccupations with this, that, and the other our age, our sex, our money, our physical appearance, what we think of our intelligence, images of ourselves. All of that, allowing that all to arise and pass away, be experienced fully and to be let go of. Letting go, in this sense, is synonymous with letting be. When we learn how to totally let everything be just what it is, that is the real letting go. Sometimes uh, when we talk about letting go in Cambridge, it's definitely one of the more popular terms now in Harvard Square. It's coming up fast, catching up to organic and natural. (laughs) Everyone's letting go of everything. So I think the, the Buddha's word is out. But often when I hear it, it sounds like throwing away or something that the person's no longer interested, they're putting in the garbage. You know, it's not, they're not letting go. They don't, they're not even interested anymore. Okay. So our practice becomes 
simple sitting right in the middle of our experience, being ourselves without any expectations, without any expectations of rewards that we're going to get for being such a good meditator. It's not to say that there isn't such a thing as enlightenment or that the mind doesn't become illuminated. But when we're sitting, that isn't what we're geared towards. What we're geared towards is our life in this moment. It's having total respect for the quality of our life in this moment. If we view life as a process, something that's constantly unfolding, our practice is not to be outside of that process, it's to be to fully be that process. And that's what meditation is for me. It's to fully experience that process. It's not that you're outside it watching it because you are the process. There's nothing outside the process. And so we become conscious of that process of living from moment to moment. In the sitting posture, we have an unusual opportunity to examine it closely, to be with it very, very closely. But it doesn't end there. The practice is wholeheartedly entering into it throughout the day. Let me, um, when we sit just being ourselves or learning how to be ourselves, letting go of expectations, and in a given sitting, it's another way of saying letting go of time. Some of you look at your watches. I haven't, during the sitting, I haven't wanted to chide you. Uh, but you know, it's far more valuable to look at the mind that is concerned about the time than to look at the watch because you'll learn more. And in this sitting, when you let go into the process of being just what's there, there's no sense of time. Time is thinking. What we're learning is the incredible art of how to get from A to A but our minds are very concerned about how to get to from A to B, ideally from A to Z, in one step. This art is really learning how to get to where you already are. We need to learn how to do it because we botch it up so much. When we're at A, we're thinking about B. When we're at B, we think back about how wonderful A was. We didn't know it at the time. <laughs> And if we only walk around here slowly with a grim face for the whole nine days, uh, when we get to Z, everything will be cured. We'll just be perfect and totally all right. That isn't the spirit of the practice. The spirit of the practice has to do with now, with our life right now. Because finally, in a very profound sense, that's all there is. The rest is all just shadows, blah, blah, blah. It's only now. And it just left. Let me give you an example of some of the the challenges that await us. And even if you feel that you can't do it right now, that's not so important as that you get a sense of the direction the practice goes in. Perhaps we never perfect anything. 
But if we have the right direction, that makes all the difference. Uh, simple things. Let's say pain. You know, we've, you probably have heard it from people in the groups and from both of us. When pain comes up in the body, let's say, how do you work with that? And perhaps it's been suggested, uh, just let it be, just the way it is. Go right to the core of the pain, experience it as it is. And as with all the instructions, that means we're not trying to fix it. We're not trying to add anything to it, subtract anything from it. We're simply attempting to feel it just as it is. But if you're relatively new to that process, even if you've sat a number of retreats, but you haven't done that much, and some of you are, are relatively new and even totally new to this practice, to take that literally, to go to your deepest pain and just be with it, fully experiencing it as it is, I think that becomes more an exercise in masochism rather than an awareness. Probably we're not ready to do it. We can't do it. So sometimes we kind of move in a very humane way, humane in regard to ourselves. The next time there's some unpleasantness or discomfort in the body, practice with that. It's a manageable pain. See if you can slip in under that, not some excruciating pain. But, you know, the knee is kind of nagging at you in some way. Or there's a a dull ache, but it's not enough to make that much of a fuss. Practice with it. Can you feel just the dull achiness of it? Not those words, but the isness of it. Without attempting to in any way cosmeticize it, uh, medicate it, do this, do that to it. Just totally let it liberate itself quite naturally. And as you practice on that, the day comes where... Uh, you find that you'll be more able to work with even uh, extraordinary pain that comes up, which sometimes it happens to us. We have no way of knowing. Let me describe one learning situation that I was in, in the Thai forest tradition. Uh, it was at one point one of the most unhappy and also one of the most wonderful periods of training that I've known. This was, was with Ajahn Mahabua at Wat Paban Thad in Thailand. And I've mentioned this to a few of you. It's uh, in many ways, uh, I come back to it as a very interesting landmark, and not only for me, but perhaps for you. When I arrived in this forest monastery, um, within the first week, whatever could go wrong did, and more than that, my tooth, one tooth broken half. Uh, I had dysentery. I had fever. I was throwing up from time to time. And the good monks of that monastery, Ajahn Mahabua and others, and I brought my own stuff. We tried all the different medicines and finally nothing was working. So finally, uh, very sweetly but with a smile on his face, through a translator, what he told me was, look, we've tried everything. You've tried everything. Um, if it ever got to be so serious, really serious, we would rush you to a hospital, which was hours away. He says, but probably it isn't that. It's just very painful and tremendously uncomfortable, and you're discouraged. Now, what you can do is you could go home right now and then talk about your great adventures in the Thai Forest Monastery. He said that. I mean, he's very on to American (laughs) things. He said, or you could practice the way my teacher taught us, Ajahn Mun, 
which is when we have illness, and what I'm saying extends to uh, to the, when we are dying, because all of us will be dying. When we have a difficult situation, right now, let's say a difficult condition in the body, the instructions don't change. It's the very same instructions that we're using, been using all this week. There's nothing new. No, ex, no new toys. No special t- uh, technology. No profound secret inner teaching. No esoteric guidance. Something that the teacher has been hiding and only waiting for the right moment. <laughs> it's the same simple approach. That is, we take what we call, let's say, all of those things that were happening to me, we can call it all what is. It's just, it would be certain rumblings in the stomach. The tooth felt a certain way. There was, the temperature of the body was a certain way. From time to time, there was throwing up. That's exactly what was happening. So step number one is accept the fact that this is really happening and that you have decided to fully not see this as, an, as a barrier to your meditation, which we tend to do, but that this is actually the meditation. The materials of your meditation are exactly this. Not trying to get rid of it. We've done that. We've used external methods as best we could. And this is as far as we've been able to go. Okay, now I've been practicing for a while. It was not uh, so new to me. I had practice in states approximating this. All I can tell you that is that to some degree I was able to do it and even though I was uncomfortable, it was ecstatic at times to just be free of uh, wanting things to be other than the way they are. Such a burden to be constantly trying to adjust life, to make it be a little bit cooler, a little bit warmer, get a little bit more of this. In the modern world, I think we've become so good at comforts and again, I appreciate air conditioning as much as you do, or central heating and so forth. But we've become obsessed with our comforts to the point where that may be a burden itself. And so it's not to make an extreme out of it. Now everyone has to give up their air conditioner and their heating. I'm not saying that. But when you find yourself in a certain situation, rather than spending the whole time fighting it, rather than spending the whole time struggling with it, living in what might be, living in what used to be, uh, if you can surrender to the way it actually is, having the faith that life is unfolding in this way and being able to let go of all of our views and opinions of how life really should be right now. Something goes on when you do that. Something very, very useful and helpful. He also mentioned, Ajahn, Mun, uh, Ajahn Mahabua mentioned, uh, he said, you know, uh, all of us will die one day. Uh, we don't know when. And to some degree, our relative calm is due to the fact that we don't know when. <laughs> it's a good one, isn't it? <laughs> And he said, in addition to just the intrinsic value of being, he was encouraging me, which of course I needed it, 
of being with so much discomfort and pain is that you don't know when death comes, sometimes it's just like this. And uh, in this sense, our practice is preparing for death. He didn't say it in a morbid way. It was actually very much enhancing the value of, of our present life because, in a sense, another way of putting it, when you're alive, be alive, and when it's time to die, die. But what uh, he conveyed to me was something of the fact that, and this is deep in all Buddhist, uh, all the Buddhist schools, is a, a very great honoring of the fact that we will die, not delaying our sensitivity to that truth until it's too late, but taking it up intentionally. As you know, we have, most of you know, there are even specific meditations to intentionally cultivate, bring up the fear that we have of death so that we can bring our attention to it in the same way that we've been practicing all week. So our approach is the opposite of the way it is for most people. Most people are having a good time not thinking about death, and then suddenly it's upon them and they're not prepared. We start, we don't, we don't have a good time. <laughs> so when the time comes, <laughs> we can be all clear-eyed and unperplexed and ready. Something, it's a little, something. <laughs> The image of the Titanic came to me about this process sometime this week. It's like all of us, you know, we're on the Titanic and we're playing shuffleboard and, you know, and uh, dancing to this jazz and, you know, and, and it's time to go watch the movie and we're having dinner in the captain's quarters and having a photograph taken and, you know, it's just uh, incredible. In the meantime, the ship's going like that. <laughs> okay. Some of us who are have a few more gray hairs than others of us are aware of this. Some of us who are uh, in pain or have sickness are aware of this. But we're all on the same ship, you know, each and every one of us. It's not to make things morbid. It's to understand that in a certain way, from beginning to end, the practice is the same. It's always being fully present with what is. Always. If you would attain enlightenment, let's say tomorrow, whatever your imagination of that state would be, what do you think you would be doing after that? <laughs> you would still, still be aware of what your life is right here in this moment. And sometimes in meditation circles, a kind of strange language where people will talk about uh, being enlightened, being unenlightened is the real enlightenment. What they mean by that is if you attain or have an enlightenment experience and get attached to that, uh, then you've just lost it. Whereas in a, from a very profound point of view, when you're enlightened, wonderful. When you're just an ignorant fool, wonderful. I mean, just totally be an ignorant fool. And when you're enlightened, totally be enlightened. So it's the very same instructions. Our practice for now and forever is to sit carefully, quietly, be ourselves, no expectation, and do this simple practice forever. Woof, woof, woof. <laughs> it's, uh, 
dramatically terrible to explain the woof-woof, but I think I should a little bit. Actually, there are different levels of (laughs) woof-woof. Or if you're apparently in Vietnam, it's wow-wow-wow. In Korea, it's wang-wang-wang. In Italy, it's bow, bow, bow. (laughs) So these dogs, I guess, uh, I don't know, they take on the language of their culture. Something Something happens. It was inescapable that when we talked about doggy mind, we're implying that this is something that's not good. This is a mind that's all over the place, that uh, has no confidence in itself, that just runs after this, that, and the other, that is imprisoned by the whim of the people who keep throwing the dogs, in this case, our own mind, that keeps throwing the bone, our own mind. Then we got to something really wonderful, the lion, and we found that even that can become a trap, so then that got tainted a little bit. And by the way, uh, even the spider disappears into its own web. Because finally, uh, if there is a kind of consciousness, a self-consciousness of being a meditator, that is the barrier to real meditation. It's a subtle one at times. But sort of Larry the meditator sitting there. When that falls away, when the meditator dies, then you enter into real meditation. That's the... uh, Uh, very important letting go in the practice. I'm pretty sure that all of you have done it from time to time already. A few seconds here or there where there isn't this self-conscious concern about who you are and how you're doing and where you're getting to or not getting to. And there's just uh, breathing in, breathing out and some calmness and real joy. And then something, of course, jumps in and does something to it and then we lose it. That's the meditator. It's always trying to figure out where it is and how it can get better. It's just the ego dressed up as a, a yogi. It's not any different. Puts on, say, you know, the sweatpants and the, whatever yogis wear. Drawstring pants and long skirts if you're a woman. Okay. But when we come through all this to some degree and we gain a little bit of insight, we take a fresh look at doggy mind. And I did that in a very deep state of samadhi extraordinarily profound state, I went into doggy mind and this is what I heard the doggy thinking. It was thinking, boy, these humans, it doesn't take much to make them happy. (laughs) All you have to do is pretend to really like that bone and chew on it as if it's real meat. Do they think I'm that stupid? I know it's plastic and it's not real meat, but every time I run and get it, I bring it to them and it makes them so happy. They just smile and say how cute I am and then they give me a roof over my head and three meals. (laughs) Woof, woof, woof.
may we all continue to look into ourselves. And may we see things exactly as they are. such clear, direct seeing free us from all forms of limitation. this phase of the retreat, I don't know exactly if it's on this retreat, but it's been very common in all the retreats that I've done. The mind tends to uh, be looking towards where our body is going to be going sometime tomorrow. So our body is here, but now we're all caught up in where we're going to be. When we were home, planning to come here, our mind was all caught up in coming here while our body was at home. So now we're just, it's nice and symmetrical. So we're sort of never where we are. The body is always one place and we're somewhere else. Practice right now would be very gentle. It could be very strong. You may have all kinds of powerful energy about what you're going back to. Don't fight with it and don't see it as anything negative or bad. Simply when it comes up, just know it. Just hear the mind rehearsing, planning, entering into a a futuristic phase and let that happen. Come back to the breathing or to whatever is next, to the walking, whatever. Uh, But we have a number more of sittings and walkings and we have some time and uh, be good if we all practice right down to the end. Uh, Silence will be broken uh, at lunch tomorrow. So we would like to keep practicing right until lunchtime. So let's all do that. I've noticed a few of you have started to, you know, in a kind of animated way, perhaps start talking with the person that you came up with. It's, of course, understandable. But try to resist that. We'll all be together with the people we came with and we'll all be leaving soon enough. Let's finish up the week um, just practicing the way we started out. Thank you.